some blue sky and fresh snow. I invite you to turn to our passage today, which is Ruth uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Uh, Ruth 1, 1 to 5. Uh, that is, it's a, it's a short little book, might be hard to find. It's in the Old Testament right after the book of uh, Joshua and then Judges and then Ruth. And we are uh, beginning this new series uh, through the book of Ruth, which will take us right up uh, before Easter. So, we'll starting uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha, and the other, Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. We're looking at this story that is uh, very old, an ancient uh, story uh, that took place in a time so far from ours, in a world that was so different. And yet, Lord, we see... Uh, how applicable it is. Lord, do you know the hearts of everyone here? Uh, you know what is weighing on them right now, and we ask that through the power of your Spirit, you would speak to each and every one of us and to show us your love and your resurrection power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever been surprised by life? A few years back, I was, uh, during spring, I was cleaning out our garden beds, uh, getting all the old plants and weeds and, and just dead leaves out of there. And I recognized these, or I discovered as I pulled out the leaves, these little sprouts that had popped out of the ground. And then a few days later, I went back and checked, and it was amazing. They'd grown an inch or two in just a few days. And I thought I recognized these leaves with kind of these up and down humps. And then the next day I went back out and they'd grown even more. And I picked one and I smelled it and it smelled kind of peppery. And then I ripped off a little leaf and put it in my mouth and chewed it. And it was kind of bitter, but tasty. You might guess what it is. It was arugula. There were a dozen little arugula plants growing up throughout our garden bed. And I'd been kind of lazy at the fall and I'd left all of the arugula plants so they grew up really big and went to seed and and finally, I pulled them out. And here, out of the barren, cold, winter ground, when I wasn't expecting, all, all I was looking for was death, dead leaves, dead plants, dead things to get out of the garden. And out of that was a little bit of life. You know, if you've ever planted a garden, especially uh, in places where it's harder to grow things, like here, and where winter kind of lasts for a while, you know how hard it is to grow things. You've got to get all the seeds at the right depth. You've got to water them. You've got to hope they survive the spring snows and spring freezes, and then you hope they don't wither when it becomes 100 degrees outside. It can feel like a ton of work just to get things to grow. But here, I hadn't done anything, and I was surprised by life. Have you ever been surprised by life? 
Maybe not just in some unexpected plants in your garden, but somewhere else. Maybe a a job lands right in your lap. Maybe a life-changing relationship comes into you to your life and you weren't looking for it. Maybe you get a good medical report after years of bad ones. We're beginning a five-week series through the book of Ruth called Life Out of Death. Ruth is a book, which we just saw, begins with lots of death, a dead field from a drought, a dead husband followed by two dead sons. It's a dark time and things seem to be getting worse, but what we're going to discover as we work through the book is that God is still at work even in the darkness. He brings life, life no one deserved, life no one was planning for. God's grace, His life, breaks into our darkness, even when we were least expecting it and certainly didn't deserve it. So maybe things are dark right now in your life. Maybe things are looking down. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. God brings life out of death. And so we're going to look just three points this morning. First, spend a little time understanding the background to the book of Ruth, and then death, and then life. So like I always do when we start a new series, I want to just take a few minutes to help us understand the background and some of the context of this book. Verse 1 tells us that Ruth was written during the time of the judges. So if you know Israel's history, you know that early on, before they had a king, but after Moses, they were ruled by these various judges. So uh, Moses led the Israelites out of Israel. Joshua was then kind of the next leader, but Joshua dies without anyone being appointed a successor. And so Israel goes through this time of having various judges who rule the land. And, And Israel kind of had this roller coaster ride during that time where they didn't have anyone to lead them and point them to God. And, and so they would kind of forget God. God would do something to shake them awake. He would maybe send raiders and, and invading armies. He might bring a famine. They would say, okay, this isn't good. They would then cry out to God. God would hear them and bring them a judge to deliver them. Samson is probably the most famous of the judges. But after each judge dies, then that whole cycle repeats itself. And that cycle is not just a cycle, but actually something of a downward spiral as each time Israel does more and more worse things and deeper and deeper unfaithfulness. And repeated through the book of Judges is a sentence, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It was like the Wild West. If you read through the book, it's depressing as you see Israel descend into greater depths of depravity. And yet, during that time, we have the book of Ruth, which is like this little bright spot of God's grace and God's life when everything else is dark. And in the opening sentences, though, we discover some of that darkness. The the land is experiencing a famine. And that famine is so bad that this family kind of weighs the options. We could stay here, we don't don't have any food, or we could leave our home live as refugees, go to another land, and and hope that maybe things would be better there. (coughs) And this book is a well-crafted story with all kinds of fun details that make it a real delight to study. Now, I don't quite feel up to the task, but I'm going to try to point out some of the, the literary pieces in this book so that you don't just appreciate the message of the book, but you get a, a, a sense of awe and delight in the way the book was crafted. 
So some of the main characters in this book are Naomi. We were just introduced to her. She's the matriarch of the family. She's Jewish. She's from Bethlehem. And within the first opening verses, she becomes a widow. Ruth is then the daughter-of-law of Naomi. She's foreign. She's from this region called Moab. And Moab was an area to the east of the Dead Sea. So if you're familiar at all with kind of the land of Israel, you know that on uh, one side they have the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's Jerusalem, and then there's the Jordan River kind of running down the middle, and then there's a bit of Israel on the other side of Jordan River, and on the past that, further east, is uh, the land of Moab. And there were constant skirmishes between the Moabites and the Israelites. They didn't like each other too much. And that's what makes this story remarkable, because Ruth, who comes from a country that the Israelites don't care for, is a pivotal figure in Israel's later success. The third main character is Boaz, who we'll meet uh, in two weeks, I think. He's an Israelite living in Naomi's hometown, and he shows up in the next chapter, and he ends up marrying Ruth. And Ruth is broken up into four acts, or four stages, that pretty much follow the divisions of our Bible. The first gives us a background of the story, one of death and grief. And then we'll learn of Naomi's decision to head back to her hometown and Ruth's determination to leave her home and go with Naomi to start a new home. The second act is when things start to look up for Ruth and Naomi as they find a field where they can pick some of the leftover grain. And there Ruth meets Boaz and he treats her with incredible kindness. In the third act, things start moving fast in this relationship where Ruth essentially asks Boaz to marry her, but then we learn that someone else kind of has first dibs in terms of the marriage. And in the fourth act, another, that other man decides against marrying Ruth, which allows Boaz to marry her, and they live happily ever after. So that's kind of a quick overview of the story. But the story is one of death to life. Redemption is a major theme there. It's a word that occurs 20 times throughout the book. It's the story of one woman who's experienced one tragedy after another. It's a story of a, a mom whose future looks dark, and she has nothing to look forward to. All the things that a mom would normally look forward to, kids, grandkids, have all died. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. Her family line is going to die with her. She's deeply depressed. Here in a little bit, she's going to change her name to Mara, which means bitter, to signify what her life has turned into. And yet, when all around her is dead, God brings life. This shows how God works, how He brings life out of death. Even when we've lost hope, even when you want to change your name to bitter because of how bad things are, God can break in with life. Have you ever lost hope? Do you feel like you are surrounded by death? This book has a reassuring message for you. It's a book that opens with death. The fields are dead. There's a famine. Naomi's family is dying quickly. But the book ends with a bountiful harvest. There's plenty of food for everyone, and Naomi has a growing family. And to see how amazing God is, this short little book of this story with this based on, the, you know, that centers around this foreign woman 
isn't just a story about God bringing life out of death, but we learn that this story is actually the origin story for the greatest king that Israel ever had, David. And then out of David comes Jesus. And let that sink in for a moment. During one of the darkest periods of Israel's history, there is this one little story taking place in an, you know, a flyover state, a place where no one would go to. And there's a widow there surrounded by death and darkness. And God breaks in to that darkness. And there he starts a process that not only changes Naomi's life forever, but it will result, it starts a thread or a chain reaction that will result in the redemption of the world through Christ, all through God working in one widow whose life had fallen apart. So this brings us into our second point, death. As I mentioned, the story opens with famine in the land. And it's interesting if you know some of the geography of the land of Israel, because this is a land that God gave Israel. He said this is a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. He handpicked this land for them. And yet, if you read through the Bible, you discover it's a land that often experienced all kinds of droughts. When Abraham, who was the first kind of settler to move there, to start, you know, he was the father of Israel, he gets there and guess what is in the land when he arrives? Drought, which would be incredibly discouraging, right? Imagine if you just took a several-month trip where you had to walk hundreds of miles, you left your home, you left your family for this new and better land, and you get there, and all you see are dying cactus because there's a drought. And you realize, oh, we can't stay here. We're only halfway there, actually. We've got to keep going, and he goes all the way down to Egypt. If you look through the Old Testament, you'll discover this is pretty common. Genesis 26.1, now there was a famine in the land, Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, if you remember the story of Joseph, which happens after this, there was another severe famine in the land where Joseph's family had to go down to Egypt in order to get food. And one of the difficulties for the Israelites is they didn't have access to a reliable source of water. All their usable water came from the rain. Right? Imagine living in a place like Israel. Maybe it's not that different from here where all the water you get is dependent on the rain that falls. That would be hard. See, the Egyptians had the Nile River, a big, strong, reliable source of water. The Babylonians had the Euphrates River, another large, powerful river to the east. But the Israelites didn't have any of that. They had the Jordan River, but the Jordan River is down in a canyon, and you couldn't farm the land around the Jordan River, and you couldn't get that water up to where the farm fields are. So they were entirely dependent on rain. And if there wasn't rain, the crops would die. Now imagine why would God pick land like that? Right? You would rather have land that's got a nice big river going through it. right? You would rather have land where you don't have to worry about, is it going to rain this week or not? Because I think the reason why God picked that land is because God wants us to trust Him more than we trust our water tanks, more than we trust, you know, our water system. He wants us to trust that He is the one who provides. And living in a land that is dependent on rain is just as reliable as living in a land with a big river. 
because God is the provider. It's not wrong for us to plan for the future, but boy, we would rather trust in our planning than trust in God to provide our daily bread. And so here the people find themselves in another famine. Now we should note the irony here because the the city name that they're from, Bethlehem, is the combination of two Hebrew words, Beth, meaning house, Lehem, meaning bread. They live in the house of bread, but they have no bread. It, It would be like going to IHOP and you order pancakes and they say, sorry, we're out of pancakes. Naomi's husband is Elimelech, which is a combination of a few Hebrew words, El, meaning God, Melech, meaning king. When you put it all together, his name means something like, my God is king. And this only deepens the irony of this story because here is a man who is from the house of bread, whose name means my God is king, who doesn't trust his God to provide bread, so he goes to some other region where his God is not recognized in order to take things into his own hands. Then we have Naomi's two sons, Mahlon and Kilian. Their meanings are less certain. One commentator thinks their their names might mean something like sterile and spent. (laughs) We see the pessimism of the family here, right? Naming your son sterile and spent. It's like that man in New York City who named one of his kids Loser, right? (laughs) It's hard to look up when your name is Loser. So they pack up and they move their family to Moab. They're refugees. Some of you know what that's like to leave your home, go to a new place, try to start a new life. It's hard. They're going to a land that's not particularly welcoming for the Israelites. And they get there, and tragedy strikes again. Elimelech dies. Now imagine if you bring your family into a new land, or you aren't like that much, and now your husband dies and, you discover, and you're a widow. And you've got two young sons to care for. She's got the responsibility to care for her family, but she doesn't have the resources to do it. Her sons grow up. They marry Moabite women. Okay, well, maybe they'll be taken care of. We get in, see a little detail in the story here where the word that is used for marry is not the normal one that is used to describe a marriage. It's one that literally means something like to take or to carry off, to lift. Her sons carried off two women. It's used only nine times in the Old Testament to describe marriage and is almost always used to describe marriage in a negative light. Marriage by abduction, marriage for political reasons. Naomi's sons soon die. One dies and then the other dies. Now imagine yourself as Naomi. You're not just a widow in a foreign land, but both your kids have just died. You're childless. And this is a practical issue, right? Who will provide for her when she's older? Back then, your kids were your retirement plan. Even more, kids bring great joy. You see your life being passed on in their lives. I think from what I can tell, grandkids do this as well, even more so, as you revel in the joy of seeing that generation going another step further. But here's Naomi and her retirement plan has evaporated, her future has died, and she's living far away from home, there's no plane that'll take her back. Naomi's mean name's Pleasantness, a name that will taunt her so much that she'll change it in a bit to something that means bitter. 
In these opening verses, the author is painting for us a picture of this family. It's a family that had good prospects. They had good names. They seem to come from good places, but they're haunted by tragedy. Sometimes people talk about a family curse. People talk about it with the Kennedy family, where so many of the Kennedys died by assassinations or accidents or premature deaths, and it just seemed to haunt them. Maybe you felt that way about your own family. It seems like we can't escape our past. The sins of my parents keep coming to haunt me. The things that happened when I was a kid, I can't get away from. It's only a matter of time before another bad thing happens or it gets so bad that something good happens in your life and it only leads you to worry about how long you'll be before it's taken away. You can't get a break. It's just one wave of bad news after another. And that is this family. And here is Naomi, without hope, without a future, without a home, utterly alone. And that brings us to our third point, life. Naomi's life has turned into a bad dream. And yet God is at work, and he's going to do something beyond Naomi's wildest dreams. As we're going to see as we work through this book, God takes these series of events and uses them to redeem Naomi's future from the dump and lets her then play a leading role in salvation history. And she doesn't do that, deserve this. Her family doesn't deserve this. If anything, they've shown a lack of faith in God, a lack of desire to follow him, to trust him. And yet God still chooses her to be the origin story for Israel's greatest king, David, and David's greater son, Jesus, the redeemer of the world. While Ruth plays a major role in this book, I think the story is really a story about the redemption of Naomi. She's surrounded by death. She's depressed. It's dark all around her. She's become one of those people that others avoid when they see her. I don't want to ask her how she's doing. I'll be stuck there all day. I don't want to know the latest tragedy in her life. I just can't handle it. Maybe people start secretly wondering, what has she done to deserve all these bad things? And she goes from being the woman that other people avoid because they don't want to talk to her to a woman, to a mother that others praise. Ruth 4.14. Then the woman in the town said of Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. And this is the story of the type of redemption that God brings have you lost hope? Do you feel utterly alone? Is darkness your only friend? Do you feel like your family's cursed, like you're cursed? God's always getting back at you. Don't lose hope. Our God is a God of redemption, a redemption that breaks into the darkest pits of our life. Most of us, we kind of live by optimism or pessimism, right? What I mean is you kind of look at how things are going and you use that to extrapolate how things are going to go 
in the future. So if you know some good things have happened to you, okay, maybe things are looking up. Bad things happen, oh man, things are looking bad. Right? It's reading the weather patterns over the Pacific Ocean to see that, up oh, looks like a few more weeks of cold and snow in March. And if you're a skier, that makes you optimistic for spring skiing. And if you're not, it makes you pessimistic for the, uh, if you're know, wondering if warm weather will ever come. You do this in all kinds of ways in your life, though. Right? You get a good night's sleep. You feel optimistic. Today's going to be a good day. You get stuck in traffic on the way to an important meeting and miss it. And you wonder, what else is going to go wrong today? And probably the way that you feel right now is based a lot on how the little things have gone in your day today, right? You saw snow this morning. Did that mean bring you joy or bring you stress? And that has then impacted the rest of the day. Is it making you feel optimistic or pessimistic? But you see, for Christians, we have a better way to live because our God is a God of hope. And that is way better than living by optimism or pessimism. It's living by faith, knowing that hope, the hope of God, can break into the most pessimistic of places. It's knowing that no matter how hard it gets, how much life unravels, how long you suffer, death never has the last word. Hope breaks in. Resurrection is coming. Death will be no more. Don't live by your circumstances. Our hope is not dependent on your circumstances right now. The hope of God will upend your current circumstances to usher in a new reality. One of life, one of joy. Think of Naomi. She had no reason to be optimistic. Everybody around her was dying. She probably wondered, what, the next person that's going to come into my life, are they going to die too? No reason for optimism, but hope broke into her life. Because the hope of God breaks into darkness to bring redemption. And we're reminded of that not just here in this story, but in the cross, where it took the death of Jesus to usher in resurrection. Life came into the tomb after the disciples had given up and left. Hope breaks in. And everyone was surprised by life. And what does that mean for you? It means you don't need to keep living by how things are going today or worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. I find myself often going back to those membership vows that we take at this church where uh, one of them says, do you receive and rest on Christ? Resting is something you always have the power to do. You can never be so tired you can't rest, right? Resting is sometimes what you're forced to do when you run out of options. It means you stop trying, stop working to control things, and you start resting in God. To rest is to acknowledge you're not in control and to trust the one who is. To rest in Christ is to believe that he is the one who is carrying you. And maybe you feel like you're traveling through this really long and dark tunnel. You ever driven through one of those? And you can't see the end. You can't see the light. You're, it's so dark, you're not even sure which way is up right now. But it is not dependent on you to get through it. 
It is not because of your strength that you'll make it to the other side. Jesus holds his people with a grip that will not let you go. And he knows exactly where you are, and he knows exactly the way, and he will bring you in to that heavenly dawn, and you will see the light again. And you will have the tears wiped off your face, and you will rest like you've never rested before. So rest in him right now. Believe in his hope that can break into the darkest of circumstances. Stop living by what you feel right now or what you're worried about tomorrow, and trust in the hope of God that will upend everything you're going through and bring in his economy of grace. He brings life out of death. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to believe this more. And the way that we would show we believe it is because we're able to rest. We stop worrying so much. We stop running around so much. We stop stressing out so much. We stop trying to control things. And Father, we help us to take a deep breath and to know that your hold on us is so much stronger than anything we can hold on to. And that when we lose our grip on all those things that we're trying to do, we only fall into your arms of safety. Father, help us to live this way, to live as people that can have hope even in the darkest of circumstances. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.